You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. Today my guest is a person who is rare because she is one of the only people that does what she does and she's very, very good at it. Uh, welcome to my guest, Mrs. Astrid uh, Wendland, who is the founder of Miss Tweed and a seasoned luxury reporter. Uh, she was the head of the European luxury uh reporting division at Reuters, and, and that team was excellent when they were functioning. Astrid, welcome. Hello. So I think the most interesting thing that you do in, in terms of, of what I think other people need to know about is you cover the corporate side of luxury. This is one of the most mysterious industries that tends to not ever want to have a face. Yet there are, of course, many people uh, behind the scenes making a lot of complicated decisions related to brands that are sometimes hundreds of years old. I guess the first question is, tell us a little bit about how you got into covering luxury from the corporate angle. Well, actually, uh, I I was never uh, meant to write about luxury. It was um, I was at Reuters and uh, I was covering uh, telecoms and uh, and and Reuters realized that luxury was becoming quite a significant business and there was a lot of investor interest in luxury stocks. So they asked me to really build the luxury beat, so to speak, uh, with a, a a network of virtual a virtual network, sorry, of correspondence across Europe from Milan to Moscow to Zurich to London. And, uh, you know, slowly but surely we beat, we, we, we built up, uh, the coverage of, of luxury with all its, uh, you know, uh, convulses and, and, uh, negotiations and deals and acquisitions. <laughs> and it was a time when the empires were being built. I mean, I was really, I guess, you know, sitting on the front row of LVMH making acquisitions, Caring making acquisitions, renaming itself, Richemont. You know, these empires were slowly uh, brick by brick, brand by brand being built. And and I followed that. I've been following it now for 15 years. Is the is the notion of a luxury conglomerate a new thing? Or has this sort of actually been around for a long time? Because to me, these companies, again, in the scheme of big companies, are still kind of relatively new. I mean, not the companies they're made up of, but the conglomerates themselves. Is that true or is that is that not true? Yes, I think it is a new concept. And I think the also the idea of big is beautiful in the luxury business uh, is, is really gaining currency in the sense that you see that there is a race right now between Caring and LVMH and Richemont, who's going to become bigger. Uh, there's a lot of speculation right now that Richemont uh, is about to make an acquisition precisely to distance itself from LVMH, which is coming close to the size of Richemont, which uh, with its recent acquisition of Tiffany. So I, I think there's a lot of focus on that right now. I think I want to put some things into perspective here because I think what's important to say to everyone is the amount of the luxury brands out there that are in fact part of a group as opposed to sort of being independently owned. You just mentioned Tiffany and Company that until recently was one of the few remaining uh, luxury brands that was independently owned. It was purchased by LVMH through a very very pro prolonged transaction with a lot of drama uh, in it, but it finally it finally went through. Um, 
would you say that like it's like something like 80% maybe more of the quote unquote luxury brands out there are potentially owned by a, a conglomerate is that right Yes that's about right I mean you you know, I think we can really count on our fingers uh the brands that are left that are independent but I think another question is what's the best model because if you think about it particularly in the watch industry which is really your specialty it would appear that the most powerful brands are are those that are independent if you think of Rolex the ultimate leader Audemars yes. Piguet Patek Philippe these are all independent brands and Richard Mille which is also a very interesting success story and if you look at the brands that are within conglomerates I don't think there's any real big success story that springs to mind aside from Hublot, which was independent for a long time and seems to continue to be managed in a very independent fashion. And that's perhaps why it's doing well, because it has freedom to really innovate. But if you look at brands within the Richemont portfolio, for example, uh, Panerai, IWC, Lange and Zona, you, you, you wonder, I mean, Take, for example, Vacheron Constantin, which 20 years ago was roughly the same size as Patek Philippe. Today, Patek Philippe makes 10 times more revenue than Vacheron Constantin. So what happened? What happened? Well, I think that's a that's a bigger bigger story, of course. I don't know if we'll be able to get to the bottom of it here. But generally, you and I agree very, very much that being owned by a luxury conglomerate, while theoretically giving you advantage, is actually... Uh, withheld a lot of these brands and probably because they have, you know, sort of like an investor. They have a corporate parent that wants its share. And that and, and, and the corporate parent also, since it owns them, it says we get to make as many decisions for, for you as you want. So they essentially have less money to work with and less ability to take risks and make their own decisions. That's why the independent ones who aren't beholden um, Maybe they have sort of a, of a board of directors or something like that, of course, but they don't have a corporate parent that essentially sees them as as a, a you know a, a one of several profit drivers. And if profits aren't good that year, they ra- they actually cut budgets rather than increase them to try to make budgets the next year um, even better. That's sort of what happens, right? Yes, and I think there's another very important uh, point and difference. Um, when you're independent and you're the CEO of a brand, you're free to go around, travel, uh, meet your customers, meet journalists, talk about the brand, uh, you know, be on the ground. Whereas if you're part of a group, a lot of that time that you should be spending talking to customers, building relationships is spent filling spreadsheets and doing reporting, which is very tedious, very uh, time consuming. Um, and and I and and that's really what managers complain about, uh, you know, uh, behind closed doors is they say, is you know, it's I mean, you have a certain uh, security and comfort being in a group because you have amazing back office uh, structures for legal admin, you know, you name it. But when it comes to initiatives, uh, to managing your time as you want, which is really the key for, you know, to success, I think, um, in, in, you know, whether it's watchmaking or, 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 or fashion or any other business, um, <clears throat> they're not that free to take initiatives, to disappear if they want to for a week to, say, meet people in Japan or China. Um, you, you feel that there's a lot of constraints and, and, and really, I think, uh, 
that's an antithesis to what the luxury business is about, which is about audacity, about risk-taking, uh, about trying new things. Um, and also uh, the, the decision-making process itself is much more tedious because if you're independent, you have you maybe need the approval of, say, three, four people, right? But if you're part of a group, this becomes maybe 15, 20 people, more emails, more meetings, uh, more spreadsheets, and, and therefore things move much more slowly. So um, I think this really should, uh, you know, uh, give groups uh, some ammunition, really some uh, food for thought. Because I, I think, for example, Richemont is really not a business school case study of success when it comes to de developing <laughs> watches. No, but really, I think, um, you know, and, and not, and LVMH is not exactly a success either. I mean, Swatch is a different uh, beast altogether. Um, and you've got the peculiarities of also the family running it, which also have an, you know, play their role in how that business is shaping up. I mean, if you take, for example, Harry Winston at Swatch Group, one wonders what they've done to this business because it seems to have all but disappeared from the face of the earth. I mean, Harry Winston used to be uh, quite the jeweler. And, I, you know, I haven't received an email from anybody from Harry Winston in, in a few years saying, hey, we're doing this, we're doing that. What's happened? Yeah. yeah. What's happened? Well, okay, so... I, here's the thing, and I think it's important to frame it from this perspective. You and I, and correct me if I'm wrong, we love nice brands. We are people that don't just like nice products, but when there's sort of a well-composed brand that takes care of itself, which is well-curated, it seems to make sense, it's, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have in the world. We like good brands. Yet these groups... Uh, while they might sit there and advocate their love of good brands, essentially they are they're thinking like investors. They're saying, what's something that's making money now that we can put money into and maybe ref make some refinements or efficiencies, and then it just sort of runs on some type of autopilot and we continue to make money on it for the long run. So I think Richemont would have been great if their job was just to make a good watch because Richemont is able to make a very good watch. But as you and I know, the secret sauce of luxury today is a degree of, like you said, risk-taking and relevancy. You have to experiment with novel designs and interesting marketing that requires, you know, pivoting immediately or making decisions very, very quickly. And at Richemont uh, and, and some of the other groups, I think an interesting anecdote is that it's actually easier for a manager to do nothing than to do something. To sit there and wait for orders from above is way more efficient in terms of your career than to actually say, hey, I have an idea. Then you have to like write a bunch of reports and do case studies and do presentations and get a bunch of people to say yes. And then you actually, by the time you've gotten that far, you're probably exhausted. Then you have to do your idea. And then while you're doing your idea, you have to keep reporting back to someone else about why it's a good idea and here's the success. And all of a sudden you realize, if I want to do anything that's different than what I'm being told, I probably shouldn't do it here. Do you Have you sort of heard similar stories? Well, yes, I think um, what you said what you said summarizes quite well what happens at Richemont, for example. So Richemont is the world's biggest luxury group. We all know it has Cartier, Van Cleef, uh, Arpels, and then it has many watch brands. And um, so say, for example, you are uh, the head of um, Gégère Le Coultre, uh, say, in France. And you want to do something for uh, the brand's anniversary, the Reverso, uh, which is their iconic model. Um, which just had a 90th anniversary. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so 
uh, I was a bit disappointed by that. That's why I'm mentioning it. But let's say we were in October last year and uh, the head of Jejal Lekoud goes to see, uh, you know, there's a, there are a couple of, uh, how do you say, uh, milestone meetings within Richemont to approve the strategies for the following year. And uh, and Johan Rupert, the uh, chairman of the Richemont Group, approves the strategies. It's wonderful. It sounds great. Because... Um, Johann Rupert is is very much known for making the long term, um, how can I say, uh, uh, survival or, or the long term equity of a brand is really his priority. It's how can I make sure that this brand remains as desirable as it is today in okay, five years? Okay, that's good to know. Years. He cares about that. I, I don't think that comes across a lot. That's really good to know that that's that's interesting. So so what ends up happening? So so Johann Rupert says this is wonderful. I love it. Great. So the teams are all enthusiastic, building on this great project for next year, say for the 90-year anniversary of the Reverso. And then come February, and then uh, Jérôme Lambert, who's the CEO of Richemont Group, will say, oh, yes, that's that's great. Yes, indeed. But sorry, we're not going to give you that big budget you were betting on in October because actually reality is this. We've got COVID. We've got that. So in fact, your budget is going to be X and much lower than Y, which you had hoped for in uh, November, and to you know, uh, to which um, so, Mr. Let's, Rupert. Let's back up here. Why? Yes. Why does he feel that cutting the budget means that that's still okay? Like it's an interesting idea. It's sort of like saying you don't have as much money to buy the house, but buy the same exact house. Everyone's like, well, I can go buy a cheaper house. Where? Where is that? Where is the built-in notion? Because I, I know Mr. Lambert. He's 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 a smart guy. What is his incentive for saying do it for less? Like, why does he do that? Well, because you've you've had COVID, because they've had to control costs. Uh, you know, they've they've made a couple of people redundant, particularly at the executive level. Uh, there's been a purge within Richemont of anybody who was critical of Lambert and you know the group's uh, rather lack of corporate culture as opposed to corporate culture, oh. but that's a separate issue. Um, you know, remember this is a group last year that uh, went, you know, was borderline mutiny when staff found out that the executive committee was uh, seeing their remuneration, remuneration increase by thirty more than thirty percent, thirty four percent, I think, if my memory serves me well. While they were seeing their bonuses and salaries cut by twenty percent, um, so there was really a deep running feeling of frustration, anger. Um, and, and added to that, you know, what I was describing, which is you, you, you build a project, uh, Mr. Rupert approves it. And then a few months later, Mr. Lombard say, well, yeah, actually great, but no. So there's a, there's a feeling of, um, you know, you're a bit like in a treadmill in a hamster, you know, you're working, working, working. Um, but, uh, you, you're finding that, okay, what are you getting at the, you know, in the end? And, and I think compagnie financière richement. In, in the very name of that group, you've got financier, which is making money. But I think, you know, in, 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 in the 21st century, particularly now with the pandemic, people's values have changed and making money is, is no longer what gets you out of bed in the morning. Surely it is a motivation and surely it's important. But I think people's values have become less material perhaps than they were five, 10 years ago. And therefore the appeal of working for Richemont and the feeling of self, 
you know, fulfilling, uh, you know, what you're doing at work and feeling that you're really, your values are in tune with that of the group. I think there's been a lot of people within the group that have grown frustrated by the lack of human corporate culture. I mean, of course, Richemont is very good at, um, however, I should really balance what I'm saying because Richemont is very good at building teams, at supporting people, how to handle stress. So they're very good at that. I, you know, don't get me wrong. But I, I think, um, the, you know, there is also an issue about the very nature of the corporate culture of the group that has been weighing on teams. And, and what I was talking about, the paralysis and the cumbersome, you know, decision making process has also played a role. And the other factor is, I think if you, you know, if you think that it takes months and weeks, uh, for things to be decided, because remember, uh, you have here a very unusual uh, management uh, system. You have a chairman, a controlling shareholder uh, called Johan Rupert, who tells its teams, CEO and you know leaders of the group, you're in charge. But the reality is nothing gets decided without his approval. So why does he even say that? Like, what, so, what's well, that's the yeah, but, yeah, but that's the very that's been you know the problem of Richemont for twenty years is that. Uh, Johan Rupert, if he's unhappy with something, will come down hard on somebody and he or she will have their head chopped off. Um, so he's got no check, right? Because he, like, if his emotion takes over, there's no one to say, Johan, you really shouldn't do that. No, no, he's the one calling the shots and people know right. that. And it's been the case for, you know, since ever the, the, the Vendome group was created in the 1980s, which was the, you know, predecessor of what is today the regional structure. Um, so you've got a situation where a chairman is in, you know, in town every other month, right? He's in South Africa, he's in London most of the time. Um, so, so it's very difficult for managers to get things done. And meanwhile, they see that at other groups, for example, at LVMH, um, things are going much more rapidly and smoothly. And there's perhaps from the outside, for them, it would look like there's more initiative and, and risk-taking. Uh, I think Chanel, for example, has, has done an excellent job in jewelry and watchmaking. And, you know, they've really marketed that well. Um, you know, they've they've been vocal. They've been all over the place, uh, whether it's in print and digital, everywhere. Uh, the G12 uh, watch, you know, is, is, is really present on people's minds, right? Just as the Rolex. Um, so what's happened to the regional brands? You see, that's that's really what uh, what I've been thinking and, about. And look, and this is something that I've talked about for many, many years. And and the thing is, we're not trying to pick on any one of these groups. I just think it's very, very important to talk about it because they are responsible for so you know, so to say, caretaking of these brands that are older than the corporations and and have a lot of meaning if you if you care about product. Let me let me ask you a question. I'm going to look at the car industry as an analog and and you can see this in other industries as well. Luxury brands, if you're sort of a conglomerate, tends to be a uh, a rare type of holding. You tend to have mostly non-luxury brands. And when you do have a luxury brand, it's almost like a halo brand or a halo product. You use it for parties. You use it to impress people. You know that it has. It makes for great gifts. Um, you funnel money into it. It's it's sort of a prestige thing. It's a it's sometimes a vanity brand. You know, for the corporation that has it all, wouldn't you like a luxury brand? In the car industry, you have that. Look at the Volkswagen Group. Like, would the Volkswagen Group make money if it was just like Bentley and Bugatti? No, it needs the Volkswagens and the Seats of the world to make money. 
And then they have these prestige brands that the executives, you know, have the most fun with. Why is it not like that for like watches and jewelry and things like that? Well, I think there's a question, you know, it's, well, if you, to come back to your point, actually look at Montclair's recent acquisition of Stone Island. Uh, Montclair, which is a luxury, uh, you know, down jacket maker, uh, acquired, which, you know, and it's, Montclair is very much positioned at the high end of the market. It just acquired a, a sportswear uh, jacket brand, which is more, uh, you know, uh, positioned towards the accessible segment. More mainstream. I, I love it. Luxury. You're not allowed to say cheap. We have to think of like all these other words <laughs> other than saying cheap. I mean, I, the first time I heard the word accessible, I was like, that's an elegant way of saying less expensive. I'm sorry. Yes, I didn't mean to cut yes, you out. I just have to point no, that no, out because no. it's funny how we dance around this. No, no, no. But I mean, it's true. There is a vocabulary that's specific to the luxury industry. And we've been so brainwashed by for the past 20 years that it's just become, uh, you know, normal and customary. I want to know, what do they think they're trying to say when they say we innovate? They know they don't innovate. What in their mind are they saying that they do? Well, no, I think they are trying to innovate. Again, uh, I think, you know, uh, it's how how it comes across. Um, and, and I think just to come back to your car example, um, you know, uh, Montclair is diversifying its, um, you know, its customer base by, you know, having more, uh, perhaps people with more modest incomes than those who can afford a 3000 euro jacket, uh, Montclair jacket. Now, um, I, I think what's interesting is, uh, you know, LVMH also has a lot of accessible brands. If you think about Marc Jacobs, uh, actually, uh, two days ago at the Q1 sales trading update of LVMH, um, you know, there is an LVMH speak. Uh, and it's, you know, if you're a, a long running LVMH follower, you can read between the lines. So when the group mentions a brand, it means that it's doing well. And when he <laughs> yeah. doesn't mention a brand, it means that it's, oh, it's in deep trouble. Uh, so, or it's not doing too well. And, and surprisingly, Mark Jacobs has been mentioned a couple of times, notably two days ago saying, you know, particularly it was doing well online. Now, Mark Jacobs is not exactly, you know, uber luxury, very expensive, uh, you know, fashion. Um, and, and, and I think the cosmetics business of, of LVMH and the, uh, you know, if you think about 20 euro lipsticks, well, that's what we call an affordable product as would be a 35, uh, euro, uh, you know, champagne bottle, uh, with a, uh, you know, uh, Krug or so, so luxury groups also have accessible, uh, products within their portfolio which is really a cash machine uh, that gives them the firepower to finance the marketing and the acquisition of the more high-end brands. I guess this Richemont is just sort of the, the off one because you're right, LVMH does, Swatch Group definitely does, uh, Caring to a degree has a little bit of it. I guess Richemont's the only one that seems to be stronger and sort of the high-end in the middle and their volume brands uh, like Mont Blanc and Bama Massier, um, and stuff like that actually have relatively little attention compared to uh, the other ones where they seem to like, you know, Vacheron, for example, seems to get all that much more attention or a Panerai that, you know, these are companies that sell watches well over $10,000, if not way, way more. Um, 
Whereas the volume side of the business just doesn't seem to be where restaurants may be very good at. I don't know. What is it exactly? Um, well, I, I think, you know, I think they, uh, they are, yes, you're absolutely right, positioned much more at the high end. And what's really interesting is that the sky seems to be the limit in terms of prices. I mean, the price of the Alhambra uh, Von Cleef uh, necklace uh, has shot like up. 80,000 or something now? No, no, no. But I mean... It used to be a thousand euros, maybe when I started covering. Uh, really, it was that inexpensive. Wow. Yeah, and then now it's you know four eight thousand euros for a bracelet or a necklace. I mean, it's the prices have oh, really, yeah. you know, it, it, and you wonder. I mean, look at the two five five Chanel handbag. Same thing. When I started writing about luxury in two thousand seven, the price of that two five five classic, you know. Uh, uh, quilted leather handbag with the chain. Yeah, was, I know exactly it, what you're talking about. The price, I remember at the boutique, and back then I thought it was expensive, was 1,850 euros. You that take like that, four or 5, 000, it's, right? it's 4,600 euros. Same yeah. bag. Of course, maybe leather prices went up, but sorry, they didn't go up four or fivefold. Um, and it's, you know, it's the same bag. Same for, you know, if you take a Rolex. So, you know, some, the Daytona or, you know, some, some, you know, really iconic models of, of brands, uh, or if you take the Patek Philippe Nautilus, for example, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of these, uh, bestsellers give such bragging rights that people are ready to pay absolutely anything for them. So it's a really interesting question of thinking about the price elasticity of, of some products. It's, and it seems that no matter how high the increased prices, there will always be people ready to buy them. And that's really the beauty of the luxury industry. And there's, that's why, you know, people are piling money into it. And the stock market has understood that as well. I mean, you know, when I started covering luxury again in 2007, you look, I remember the price of, uh, say, uh, Hermes shares was, I think, 100 something. And then you had the LVMH, uh, you know, attempt to take control at Hermes, which of course they officially always denied, but we, we knew it was Oh, happening. I remember that. I remember uh, that. You know, with the famous handbag war, uh, the price of Hermes shares went up to 250. And back then everybody was shocked. Oh my God, 250 euros. Wow. <laughs> Today, Hermes shares are close to 700, 600, 700. <laughs> what happened? What happened? I mean, same for LVMH shares. They were still very high a couple of months ago. Two days ago, they published amazing uh, rebound figures, uh, which again pushed up their share price. So it really seems that whether you look at it from the stock market point of view, from the products point of view, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. And so, of course, all the eyes are going to you know, be centered on that industry thinking, hey, I want a piece of that action. So the luxury industry, really, it's quite interesting. When I started covering it, there was not that much money into it. But now you've got a lot of fund managers, hedge funds going into it, um, you know, uh, people buying brands, uh, private equity money piling into it. And now we're entering an interesting uh, uh, intersection, so to speak, period, because People are now thinking, okay, the world's getting vaccinated. Uh, you know, it's it's going to reopen post-COVID, post-pandemic. So now is the time to make acquisitions because uh, we think the worst is behind us. So there's been a lot of speculation uh, on that right now. And, and it's a bit of a race for who's going to be able to buy what. 
uh, because as you know, the market is flush with cash, cash that has been asleep for the past 12 months. Yeah, because investors the, haven't been doing too much. Exactly, because of the pandemic and, and the uncertainty and what else you know is going to happen. And, and very much it was a bear market. And I think now uh, the mentality is, is and the spirit of the market is, oh, well, things are actually doing you know, much, much better than we thought. And unemployment is declining and businesses are rebounding. Um, but it, what's interesting is you've got still an undercurrent of, of, of great uncertainty. And, and I think there are two minds. I think there are people who are optimistic and there are people who are very worried about government, what seems to be printing money because, you know, we've seen France and Germany and Canada quite recently just you know, went ahead with a huge, huge package of support for its economy, printing money literally uh, to support businesses. I mean, there's talk now, for example, in France of uh, businesses that borrowed money to, 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 you know, weather this pandemic might not be forced to pay it back. Uh, so, you know, one wonders um, what will be able to sustain the economy. I mean, if it's printing money, we could have high inflation. And that's a that is a, a worry because remember, you know, the global. Oh, we, we will have high inflation. <laughs> it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. No, but I think, I think uh, you know, what's going on in the global economy um, and, 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 and the luxury industry is certainly not going to be immune by, uh, to it. Um, the question is how quickly will tourism uh, restart? Uh, I think there's also a very big chance that travel will become more expensive and therefore uh, what was, uh, you know, a huge cash machine for luxury brands, these buses of, you know, tourists coming in, in, a, in a shop and buying loads of products. I think that might take some time uh, to, to come back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I, want, I want to go back to sort of this notion of, because you, you brought up so many good points, and I want to talk about this notion of these, of these companies being publicly traded. Um, this is sort of not an obvious thing. And I think if you really think about sort of an irony that there are these elitist by nature brands, uh, they are luxury, meaning they are for haves and, and not for have nots, that are publicly traded. Is That's a little bit weird, A. And then B, why do people in, invest in these? I mean, are these, you know, we talked about all the challenges they have for revenue and it's constantly challenges and things like that. What is the incentive of an investor um, to invest in these companies is just because the 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 brands and the corporation are are sexy or are they giving good dividends? I'm just trying to understand what is their incentive uh, for the people to to purchase their shares. Well, you know, I'm a journalist. I wish I had I could purchase shares because if I was, I probably wouldn't have to work anymore. I mean, if I had purchased, say, if I invested a hundred thousand euros in Hermes, LVMH, and Caring shares. 15 years ago, I'd be sitting pretty. I wouldn't have to work anymore. Um, well, I mean... <laughs> which is quite unfortunate because I cannot, and I've never held any luxury shares, and I never <laughs> will because well, I have a lot of... You're not a gambler. You're no, not but a gambler. I, have, I do have inside, insider information. Sure. I mean, the other day, Ms. Tweed published a story uh, which was uh, picked up by the entire planet, uh, Reuters, Bloomberg, Women's Wear Daily, Swiss, uh, German, Italian press about um, uh, a potential tie-up between Kering and Richemont, and Richemont shares rose 6%. Well, you know, if oh. I had bought Richemont shares before, I'd be sitting pretty, uh, you know, or, or even if I called up my friends and I say, you know, hey, but I, I don't do that because... Uh, 
I, I know it sounds very strange and I, I write about luxury, but I've actually made a vow of poverty becoming a journalist. I'm not interested in making money. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a journalist. <laughs> I'd be advising luxury brands and, or being an M&A banker or working in Wall Street or, or having my own hedge fund or investment fund. Um, but that's, you know, I'm having fun, uh, what I'm, you know, writing stories and I'm very much enjoying it, but it's, it is very much a vow of poverty in the sense that, you know, I, there are loads of occasions for me to make money, but I'm just not interested. And I know it sounds completely surreal and people, that's probably why people think I'm a bit bonkers is because I'm not interested in money, but I've never been, and maybe I will be tomorrow, but right now I'm still not. And that's why Miss Tweed is credible. And that's why people read Miss Tweed. And that's why my readers are a lot of them. I mean, even, you know, uh, senior CEOs of, of luxury brands, I think I'd rather not mention them, but, you know, people can have an idea. Uh, but people who read Miss Tweed manage billion dollar budgets and and why they read it because we're independent because i'm not interested in being sponsored by anybody and i want to be free to write you know whatever i think is is pertinent and relevant now um of course that's a great responsibility and i i always measure very carefully uh my words and and how i i, I explain things uh you know freedom is 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 a, is a luxury in in this in this world, particularly in the media, and particularly if you think about people who write about fashion and luxury, most of my rivals and most esteemed uh, media uh, competitors they depend on the uh, advert you know advertising budgets of big brands of Chanel of Louis Vuitton. So why, why do you call them rivals exactly? Help me understand that. Well, because we I mean uh, we are in competition for having scoops, for having uh, eyeballs, for having attention. So, and, and the more the merrier, I, I have a very much of a sports spirit, you know, I'm a, I'm a slalom racer and I'm right now in Val d'Isère to organize an event next year. I don't know if you want us to talk about it or not. Uh, yeah, but go I, ahead. What, what, are you, what are you doing up there in the Alps? So I'm in Val d'Isère in, uh, uh, in the Alps in Savoie in France to uh, organize um, a Davos of luxury in April uh, 22 next year. So exactly a, a year from now. Um, uh, it will be a three-day event. A, a, a summit of the great minds and important personalities, so to say. You know, after 10 years of going to the Condé Nast Luxury Summit, having organized luxury summits myself at Reuters, having gone to the New York Times Luxury Summit, the Financial Times Luxury Summit, I've done, you know, so many summits. So I've decided now not to do a, 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 you know, a luxury summit, but it's going to be called Luxury at the Summit. And um, the spirit is very simple, invitation only. Uh, people will have to be co-opted. So for example, if I give you an invitation, you will get three invitations that you can give to people who will have to meet three criteria. First, having something interesting to say about the luxury industry. Second, not being a party pooper, being in good spirits. Uh, we don't want people with long faces at this event. Very important for the homogeneity of the group. Third, enjoying the mountains. So if they meet that criteria, they will be invited. We don't want a sponsor. We don't want somebody... Because, you know, at these events, I'm sure you've seen, you have to listen for hours to brands or people saying, we are so wonderful. We're walking on wander, water. You know, here's what we do. So we don't want sponsors for the event. The only sponsors uh, will be for the Fashion Cup. So there'll be a slalom. 
between us, uh, I, I won't be officially competing. I, I'll be uh, one of the people who set the base time. Um, and I, I would like to have prizes. Uh, I'm hoping we can get, say, Chanel skis or Fusal suits or, you know, so that people are motivated to, to race to, to win these prizes. And it should be fun. So what would, what would the goal of this be? You know, help explain to someone, because this sounds fun and very luxury, actually. But what, you know, what is sort of the, the business outcome? Because it sounds like there's people here that control a lot of money and, and control the fates of a lot of employees, investors, and, and consumers that want to purchase these goods. What, what would, you know, what do the guests believe is your intended outcome of uh, a summit like this? Uh, the idea is to have interesting conversations, uh, widen your network, meet interesting people, uh, and you're part of a club. And this event will be open to Mistreep subscribers only except for those who will be invited by me. Oh, oh, okay. So it's like, it's like what everybody really wants Clubhouse to be, but actually in person. Well, yeah, uh, you know, I think that because we, you know, we don't have a sponsor um, and I will, I, will, uh, I will invite people to help us reflect about world economic affairs. We're going to talk about luxury, but it will be quite highbrow. We will not talk about, you know, um, well, we're going to talk about really essential things. I want people to leave that event having learned something, having uh, really, be, you know, uh, had fruitful, uh, enriching exchanges. I, I think, and it really comes down to to Ms. Tweed's values and, you know, and, and the values of people who work f- for this media is what we value is really interesting um, exchanges and conversations. That is a luxury in itself, and and that's what that's the promise we're we're giving for this event. So you and I oftentimes have to write about corporate decisions, and there's people behind these decisions. There's egos behind these decisions, and sometimes there's a lot of money and, and careers and things like that 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 hinge on these decisions. Yet oftentimes we have to critique decisions that weren't very smart or weren't appropriate or just for whatever reason didn't work. What is the strategy for us to maintain our access, maintain our position and sort of not get our heads in the guillotine, so to say, um, when when doing our job? What, what is your strategy to sort of do what you do, but also to the best of your ability, stay out of trouble? Well, I, I think uh, rule number one, uh, if you're going to criticize a company or, or somebody say, you know, they did a bad job or that decision was silly, whatever, give them right of reply and give them a chance to explain and, and justify themselves and say, well, OK, this is, you know, this is how we're going to sort out this this problem. So I always give people a chance to to reply. Um, you know, Miss Tweed is well-wishing. I am a well-wishing person. Uh, I want people to be successful. I want people to uh, make us dream. And I will applaud when people, uh, you know, tell us beautiful uh, stories because that's really what this business is about. You know, luxury is about, uh, you know, telling beautiful stories, about making us dream, about projecting a glamorous world detached from mundanities, detached from, you know, anxieties. Um, and, and the luxury industry is, 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 is pretty, um, fascinating because it appeals to the, to our irrational side. It's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot like the movie industry in a lot of ways where it's a, it's, it's wonderful escapism. Yeah. Yeah. It's escapism. It's about entertainment and it really, you know, it's, it's profoundly human. 
Um, and that's what I find really fascinating about that industry. And I have a lot of admiration and respect for um, designers and creative types who, who really think hard about how to make us dream. You know, uh, Fernando Pessoa, the, the Portuguese writer, says uh, literature exists because reality is not enough. And one could say the same thing <laughs> about luxury. Luxury exists because reality is not enough. Luxury is really uh, completely tuned into our irrational side. Uh, and, 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 and that's why it exists. And that's why it will always exist. Uh, whether you think of, uh, you know, uh, 4,000 years ago, uh, luxury was about this, about ornaments, about gold, or about a certain way of, of uh, <clears throat> behaving, dressing yourself. And today luxury is, is maybe completely different. Uh, I, 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 have, I have to say this right now because one of the first episodes of this podcast series of Superlative, myself and uh, David Bredden from the Blog to Watch team, we did a whole show on the definition uh, that we ascribe to the word luxury. And one of the things I came up with, with which is I, I think an interesting, an interesting concept, but just wrap your mind around it. Luxury is the opposite of efficiency. Yeah, maybe. However, if you look at LVMH, efficiency is the word that comes to mind. Well, I mean, that's the company, right? It's but a the wild idea oil that, machine. <laughs> you know, that, and that's the company that, that produces um, a, a luxury you know, company that has to sell and market and da-da-da-da. Of course, it needs to be efficient. But the, the, core, the core psychological element of what we're chasing is extra. We want extra, more than you need, extra time, extra comfort, uh, ex extra aesthetic, um, something additional to what we need. Life in pure efficiency, which is just what we need to get by, is does not for most people seem like a life worth living. We strive for those extras. We fight, we hunt for that extra, which is why I think, in agreement with what you said, that luxury is not only human, but it's with us forever. It will always be part of our society. No, absolutely, absolutely. So to come back to your point, you know, I'm super careful about what I write, uh, you know, but I will, but I do feel free. I mean, it's funny, uh, I've not ever since I launched Miss Tweed in June 2020, I've not once received an email or a phone call from a luxury company or group complaining about what I've written. Not once. Why do you think? Why do you think that is? You think it's it, like you said because you're careful. Is it maybe something about your status? I mean, I want and I want to talk about this next. You you live in Paris. You 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 were not originally from Paris, but you live in Paris, and Paris is a is a very important city. Um, it's not the only place where luxury comes from, but it's sort of like the the thematic capital uh, of luxury, at least Western style luxury. Would you agree? Yes. Uh, actually, I was born in Paris, you know, and I feel... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I feel quite Parisian. I mean, as you know, I have a German family name uh, from Mecklenburg, north of Germany. Uh, my my father uh, is Canadian, so he's a German immigrant to Canada. Uh, and I also have a French passport, so I have a French and a Canadian passport. And I'm married to Russia because uh, the father of my child is Russian, I, and I feel quite Russian, and I speak fluent Russian. So, um, and, and, and yet I feel very Parisian and I think Paris is a really wonderful place, uh, for many reasons. And it is the capital of luxury and fashion. If you think about it, um, fashion week, Paris fashion week 
Why is it so authoritative? Why, uh, why is it really the fashion capital, uh, Paris? Because not you, you have to be invited to show during the official Paris Fashion Week calendar. Whereas in New York, Milan, or London, you you know if you go through an agency, uh, you know you you're given a slot. I mean, uh, it's it's much more merit based, um, and so the there are gatekeepers you see for Paris Fashion Week that are. Uh, much more demanding uh, than those for other uh, fashion weeks. And Paris is really, I think, um, one of the world's last bastion of freedom of expression. And it is also a capital of uh, creativity. Why? Remember, exactly 100 years ago, Paris was becoming the cosmopolitan city that it is today. You had Tango arriving from Argentina. You had Josephine Baker arriving from, uh, you know, the United States. Uh, you had the Russians fleeing the civil war, uh, all these princes who were driving taxis around. You had the Russian ballet. And, and what I want to say is that Paris has always been uh, a safe harbor for creative types, no matter how wonderfully crazy you are, you will always uh, have a home in Paris. And that's why Paris has always been a place, uh, a magnet for creative types, because they are not judged there, because they are free to express themselves. And it has always been the case. And, and you know, there, I mean, I've seen the wackiest exhibitions in, in, in Paris, um, which you know, might not have been uh, allowed in, in other places in the world. And, and that's why I'm very proud that Miss Tweed is based in Paris, because I think we uh, embody that uh, freedom of, of thought, uh, you know, and, and we also say when something is wonderful, we say when something is, is, is not good, and we explain why. And, and I think, uh, you know, there should be more of us around the world, uh, you know, because if you think about it, uh, you know, and, and, and if you think about the fashion press, and that's precisely what I've discovered when I left Reuters in 2017 to, to write my book, uh, How Luxury Conquered the World, I discovered that all the big media outlets uh, were not exactly free. And I was quite free at Reuters, but I, I wasn't if I was working, you know, for, I, I won't name them, but, you know, big news organizations that depend on the advertising budgets of big luxury brands. And I was quite disappointed. So that's why I created Miss Tweed and Miss Tweed is really just um, an attempt at making survive what I consider its craftsmanship in journalism. You know, high quality investigative journalism requires uh, time, talent, money. Um, people who write for Miss Tweed are very experienced, uh, talented journalists uh, who are very careful about what they write, sourcing you know, we always triple check things before we publish them uh, because we, you know, we're all very conscious of the fact that, you know, maybe now we're doing okay and we're, you know, well perceived, but it takes just one bad story and we're dead. It takes 15 seconds to lose your reputation and reputation is all you've got when you're a journalist, really. And and when you're conscious of that fact, well, you're pretty careful when you write things, uh, even even when doing interviews, you see, even when I talk to people on the phone, they're not the those conversations are not going to be published. But even then, I'm very careful about what I say. Yeah, and these and these are people that you know routinely fear for their careers and things like that. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blogged Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. 
buy your wristwatches elsewhere, and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the blog to watch store. Right now, the blog to watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the blog to watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. The luxury industry values storytelling. That is how they sell uh, their goods. That's how they sell their brands. Constant, authentic storytelling is what they are are looking for. And yet at the same time, like you alluded to a few moments ago, most of the publications that they they advertise in, they actually uh, restrain from from storytelling. What is what is sort of to to account for this this odd contradiction? <sighs> Well, you know, luxury brands want media to tell the story they want them to write. But but why, though? Like, they, they didn't get popular because of controlling what everyone said about them. Oftentimes, it was quite organic. And then by the time that they feel like they have enough power to do something about it, they, you know, they they constrain themselves. You know, they, they, they keep themselves almost like in a straitjacket. Mm, well, I mean, if you... You know, I mean, I, I think some stories are really dictated by brands. If you look at some stories, uh, and it really looks like it. I mean, the quotes yeah. are polished. I mean, you could even suspect a lawyer read them. Uh, which is- it just it doesn't come across as authentic. And if there's anything that the social media generation has taught us, is that people they might not know what is authentic, but at least they're looking for authentic. Well, that's why Miss Tweet is thriving. Because we are authentic, because, you know, our quotes are now rewritten 15 times by PR teams. Um, <laughs> no, but it's true. And, um, you know, and, I, and, and that is really my quest. Uh, I am a, a person on constant quest for authenticity, sincerity. These, those are my values. And those are the values of people who read our, our stories. I mean, uh, you know, good, you know it's, it's good readers who uh, generate good stories. And, and, and it's this exchange. And that's also, you know, the spirit of what our event in the Alps will be next year is we want, I mean, it will be fluid. So, we, you know, there'll be skiing in the morning and then the afternoon we'll have conferences from say 2.30 to 5.30. Uh, that might change. But the way I see it is skiing in the, in the morning, lunch, and then people, we, you know, pe- we will be talking for about 30, 40 minutes. And then there'll be a good 20 minutes when people can jump in and come and comment you see. Um, and, and, and that's really what will be the, the, the strength and originality of that event is that it's not going to be, uh, controlled. It'll be fluid. I want, I want to leave a lot of room for improvisation. Uh, if suddenly, you know, the topic becomes this and we, we veer away from the initial one, but because it's so much more interesting, let it be. Let it be. And, and, and that will be so much more authentic than anything, you know, we will have uh, decided or, you know, uh, directed from the start. 
you know, you mentioned Davos. I haven't I haven't been to Davos, but is this like Davos? Is there sort of another event and another vertical that you're sort of, you know, inspired by? I'm just I'm just interested because it's it's an interesting concept. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the World Economic Forum is very much, uh, you know, discussing the big okay. issues. And, and that's the spirit of that event is discussing the big issues. You see, which is for everyone that doesn't know, that is the Davos event. It's not just called Davos. Well, Davos is a place. <laughs> Davos is a place, and it's the World yeah. Economic Forum that runs it. I, I just because in the in the West, I mean, there are very few people that know about this event at Davos. And when people hear Davos, they just I, they think like it's some type of film festival. They're not really sure what it is, but they don't know. Um, <laughs> they don't know that it has actually has a, a geopolitical angle to it. You know, uh, one of the I think one of the founding principles of events taking place in the Alps, like Davos and like our luxury at the summit uh, by Miss Tweed, is uh, people don't say the same things on a chairlift or in a chalet as they would in a meeting room in the city. Um, you know, when you're in the Alps, when you're in the mountains, uh, you're far away from your headquarters, from people, from your shareholders. I.e. surrounded by luxury. No, but, you know, the setting, <laughs> very, no, but, uh, you know, I'm also part of the, the Ski Club International des Journalistes, which is uh, uh, East meets West uh, club of journalists. And, and the spirit of that is exactly the same as Davos and as Luxury at the Summit by Miss Tweed, which is when you're in the mountains, you're much more free to express yourself. And also because you are detached, you'll be maybe a bit more profound. You'll be able to reflect more. You, you have a certain distance that really allows you to, you know, think of this big picture. And that's really what it's all about. I, I will, again, sort of add credence to this because I think it's really important to give more context. So Right now, we don't know what the future of watch brand trade shows is going to be like, but up until recently, there was the Basel world and the SIH of the world. And the irony of these shows is even though they would call themselves trade shows, there was nothing for the trade. It was basically a large series of halls where a bunch of companies were having meetings simultaneously, but not talking to one another, not really knowing what each other's going on. I mean, the most common question I would get as someone that would go from, you know, booth to booth, meeting to meeting is, what are the other companies doing? What are the guys over there doing? What are the guys over there? Anything cool that you've seen? Because they haven't even left their own little space outside of, you know, getting to there or going to the bathroom once or twice a day. They don't really know what's going on. No one's chatting with one another saying, hey, everyone, here's what worked for me this year. Or, hey, everyone, I've had this problem. Does anyone know how to solve this? Like none of that goes on. And it definitely needs to, and not just watches, but in, in luxury in general. Then my next question, why do you think that secrecy and, uh, again, sometimes it's called discretion, but it's really about <laughs> secrecy. Why is this such a sort of unavoidable element of this industry. Everything is treated like it's a nuclear secret. And it's like, guys, you just have a new color coming out next year. What, what, is, what is sort of to account for this sort of obsessive level of discretion? Well, I think, first of all, what's at stake? You know, you've got billions of sales at stake and therefore you don't want your competitors to know your strategy. So, you know, Yet they all have green watches. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no, no, I know. none of the secrets actually seem to be holding very well. Well, yes and no. I mean, um, 
you know, for example, you might not want your rivals to know you're about to acquire this business and you can understand you'd want them to keep it under wraps sure. for, you know, um, same for a new watch or a new model or something that will really make you stand apart from others. Um, but I think there's also, so there's the question of, um, you know, there's also the question of ego. Um, I think people, uh, you know, there's a lot of big egos in that industry and they think their ideas are so smart and wonderful and amazing that therefore everybody will want to copy them and therefore they have to be secret. That's also, you know, it's just profoundly human. It's just the way it is. <laughs> um, no, but really, uh, there's a lot of, of that as well. Now, I think uh, there's also some, some, if you look at Chanel, which is really the, you know, uh, secrecy is, is a second nature for everybody working for Chanel. Uh, you know, they, they want... Uh, Chanel to be only known for their products and for their creativity. They don't want people to know what's going on inside the business. Uh, they will come out from time to time and say, you know, we're supporting this and that. But at least Chanel are not always like caring, saying we're trying to save the planet or empowering women or, you know, um, <clears throat> they just stick to their knitting. And, and, and that's actually been quite a good strategy if you think about it. No, that, that makes sense. I guess I just get amused a lot because the companies, compared to many others, they put so much weight on secrets that don't seem to be that big of a deal. But it's more than just we don't want to tell you about our product. It's we don't want to say anything. And I'll, I'll go to sort of the annual reports. You know, you and I have both looked at annual reports of these publicly traded companies. And the whole idea of an annual report is to tell your shareholders generally what you're doing and how you're doing. These are long reports that say almost nothing. And I always wonder, like, how does this get through any regulatory uh, scrutiny? Like, it's the weirdest. Like, how do they get away with that? Well, no, I think they, you know, they divulge what they have to divulge and they get away with it. I mean, so they don't uh, have to divulge anything, in other words. Well, no, they do. They do. But I mean, uh, I mean, I, I I read annual reports because, uh, you know, for example, that's where you get figures for acquisitions. That's how I found out yeah. say that Richemont paid 230 million euros for Bucciolati because it's in their annual report. Yet when the deal was announced, no no figure was was given. But wait a couple of months for the annual report to come out. Well, they have to put it in. Why? Because they have to justify for that cash outflow. Right. Um, yeah. And and so annual reports are also very interesting uh, from a remuneration point of view. As remember last year, as we, we talked about, Richemont, you know, the, the, the pay increase of the executive committee and people were borderline, you know, on the mutiny mode. Um, I, I, I think uh, that secrecy is important, but I think uh, more and more are becoming uh, more and more groups are are. are our understanding that they have to be also more transparent. There has been a call for transparency uh, in the supply chain, for example. Um, who makes what and where and in what working conditions? How are... Uh, this is you a know, big topic for you right now. You know, that's a big topic. Uh, employee well, well-being, uh, whether it's at the companies themselves or at their suppliers. Um, and, and right now, one of the big questions is, uh, you know, the Uyghur Muslim minorities in the uh, Xinjiang uh, province of China, which is uh, that produces 80 percent of the country's cotton and I think is one fifth of the uh, world supply of cotton. So, um, uh, you know, there are more than 150 brands who buy cotton from Xinjiang 
And there have been numerous reports by, uh, you know, United Nations and and, and various organizations uh, that detail uh, what was going on and what's going on is in fact a genocide where uh, the Chinese are slowly but surely, um, uh, you know, destroying an entire nation um, and which of course they are uh, publicly rejecting and saying these are just lies and false allegations and nothing of the sort is happening. Um, and uh, the West uh, uh, two weeks ago uh, imposed sanctions on China, it was Canada, Great Britain, United States and Europe uh, and, and China imposed sanctions on, uh, you know, people from these countries in retaliation. And, uh, for example, there have been a number of uh, EU parliamentary uh, members of parliament, of EU parliament that were sanctioned, um, uh, university professors, associations. And, and, and it's one of the first times in, in perhaps the luxury industry's uh, 40 years of existence that uh, you have a question that has become... Uh, really at the center of, of geopolitics. Um, yeah, th- th- let's 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 back up here and explain. This is more than just a P- like a, 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 a kind of like routine PR decision. We want you know our our customers to not be upset about. This is literally a position that the brands have to take, where they're damned if they do, if they're damned if they don't. Because on the one hand, you have the West's perspective on all this. On the other hand, you have China, which is a massive market for these goods. Forget the fact that they're buying the cotton from there. It's a massive market for these goods. And what we've seen is that China very often rallies its its populace together to to boycott brands that don't seem to be uh, China-friendly at the moment. So the brands have this challenging business decision, not just image decision to make, right? Well, in a way they, you know, it's, I've, I've, <clears throat> I've done an interesting experiment and I'll have the results uh, published on Ms. T- in Ms. Twitter uh, this Sunday. So I've, I've written to everybody, all the big brands, Chanel, Hermes, uh, Montclair, Prada, Kering, LVMH, uh, you know, I, and I've asked them, so have you made sure that none of your uh, supplies source cotton from Xinjiang? You know, I, I got maybe two replies saying we're going to look into it, and <laughs> and and most people is uh, you know as we say in French, au secours fuyons, uh, you know, courage fuyons. Sorry, courage. Let's run away. Uh, so let's pretend that email never arrived in our mailbox. Um, and you can understand oh, them. You can understand them because, as you said, very it's a catch twenty two situation. Um, and there was a question during a Q1 sales conference call of LVMH two days ago uh, about that. And Jean-Jacques Guyoni, the CFO of LVMH, said, oh, we're, we're very successful in China and we don't see any problem there. So totally sidetracking the issue as if there was not an issue. Um, <laughs> They're so good at that, answering or that answering, right? So, so that's quite interesting. But you know, if they keep mum about it, uh, what, I mean, it, it's a question of credibility. I mean, uh, and, and I think it even more, more fundamentally, it really begs the question, can business be moral? Because remember that luxury fashion brands in the recent years have really projected an image of, of, of do-gooders, you know, we're saving the planet, empowering women, being inclusive, uh, you know, um, and, and, and they really want to be more than just brands telling us a good story. They want to be, uh, you know, helping the world become a better place. Well, what credibility do you have 
and, and those in good intentions if you're remaining silent about one of the most shocking genocides going on in the world right now. I mean, I spoke to an Uruguay lady yesterday who was telling me all her uncles were in labor camps. Um, they forced sterilized women. They forced women to marry Han Chinese. Uh, the, the language is banned. Their culture is being eradicated. Uh, people are fleeing persecution. Uh, you know, so the other question is, what happens when your biggest customer is a totalitarian state conducting a genocide? Now, however, if you think about it, uh, remember that uh, luxury, <laughs> uh, luxury's ties with, say, totalitarian states uh, is, is, you know, is not new. If you remember Gabrielle Chanel was an informant or allegedly a informant, I mean, of course, you know, they People who, you know, working at Chanel would say that was never the case, but she was quite close to German officers and informing them and was not exactly a French patriot, right? She was not exactly in the resistance movement, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, and, and luxury has a long uh, history of, of, of ties with, uh, you know, totalitarian states. So, so can business be moral? I think really that is what it, this question boils down to. And I, and I think, you know, business first, morals later. So I think, uh, you know, I think brands need to think very carefully about, uh, you know, wanting to project an, an image of, of saving the world. And that's why I was saying Chanel is quite good because, you know, they're not trying to do that. They're too much, you know, they're doing it because everybody is, but not to the extent of, of caring, which, Really, every, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm getting an email probably every week from Caring about all the wonderful things they're doing to make the world a better place. Oh, so they're like, with the greenwashing it or whatever like that, just trying <laughs> to like... But it's not uh, only that, it's, you know, it's women, then if it's black people, then it's Asians, then it's this, then it's that. And, you know, and you've got L'Oreal also doing it. And, and you know, many groups are uh, into this, you know, uh, who's going to... Uh, talk, uh, you know, lou louder than the others about their wonderful initiatives to, to save the world. You'll be, you'll be proud of me. Uh, it was more than, more than a year ago now, of course, but I, I was asked to lecture, be a guest lecturer um, here at a university in Los Angeles at a class. It was at Woodbury University and a friend of mine's professor, uh, Professor Bendoni, and she asked me to lecture in front of her class, which is luxury brand marketing. I went in there uh, to lecture in front of this class for a few hours and I brought up this concept of moral versus immoral luxury. And um, these young people had basically never thought about it. And I got them talking about this idea of the ranges of luxury versus immoral luxury, from the purchasing of it to the wearing of it to the production of it. And you're, you're absolutely right that this is only now an emerging um, idea. And you see the industry kind of floundering around they're like they're not they're, they're not really doing too much they attach themselves to these causes whether it's you know I identity rights environmentalism sustainability um you know whatever it is they seem to sort of attach themselves and detach uh as as the wind blows but it's very difficult to determine you know if, if there's a big if there's really a, a big element i mean most luxury brands as they are actually aren't massive polluters or anything like that. They're not like chemical companies or anything like that. But mm, it's just interesting are, to see that are, from a... They are polluters and they are using... I guess I'm thinking of the watch space. You know, I'm thinking of the watch space. You know, how how bad could it be to make some watches? But I guess, I guess you know, I don't know. That's an area of ignorance. I don't know the carbon footprint of, of a timepiece. I guess the idea is that you don't have... They're not disposable, so that's good. Um, but are there... 
Are there actual initiatives that are trying to help the world or is this just mostly PR moves to, you know, to look good in front of consumers? No, I think there is a genuine uh, movement uh, and efforts. And, and, I, and I think what I find very interesting are these alternative materials, uh, say uh, mushroom leather, uh, pineapple leather, uh, apple leather, you know, alter- alternatives um, to existing uh, resources, natural resources, because, you know, we are confronted with the fact that, you know, there will be ever increasing demand for uh, products, for, lu- for luxury goods say leather goods, right? But the supply of leather is, is finite, it, you know, is, is, it cannot be extended, uh, you know, forever. So I think there's a there's some really interesting initiatives there. There's a lot of money going into those startups developing those alternative fab- fabrics and, and, and products. Um, I still can't get my mind off of mushroom leather. I don't know what that means. I'm like, is that, is that, is that edible? I just, I don't know what no, mushroom leather so is. It's, it's the root of mushroom mycelium, which is cultivated okay. and, and turned into a, a fabric that really has the look and feel of leather. So it's, it's so it's, it's so mycelium is compressed or is it woven or how's that work? Yeah, it's a protein. Uh, it's 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 basically uh, and you've got also interesting uh, silk uh, uh, inspired by spiderweb DNA, and they take a cool. silk protein and they weave it into a material that's super resistant uh, to everything, um, and and it's grown in a lab. You see. Um, and it's and it's real and it's an alternative to the natural silk, um, you know, uh, made by worms. So um, and 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 so just to come back to to uh, mushroom leather. In fact, Hermès is 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 totally into it right now. They're uh, they're going to uh, put up for sale. Of course, not the Birkin or Kelly bag. I forgot the model, but it's a you know it's one of it's not one of their top models but it's a pretty successful model in in mycelium in this uh in this uh mushroom leather and i think um that's quite bold of them to do that and i admire that i think that's great is this like fur because i remember that fur was sort of the at least for me now, fur the is first a, big controversial thing in luxury so i let's remember what Karl Lagerfeld said about fur what did he say about fur? He said, uh, you know, I will I will not accept a debate around fur uh, while people still continue eating meat. Okay. okay. I, that, 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 look, that's practical. It's practical. And and I think, uh, you know, just because uh, minks are cute animals uh, and they're cuter than, say, cows, then the world will, you know, cry about them and about, you know, and, and crocodiles and all that. And exotic skins are also banned because there's been farming, because there has been some excesses, which has been very, uh, you know, there's been a lot of um, videos uh, by uh, the, you know, uh, animal uh, rights protection uh, associations um, that, you know, have alerted to that problem. But, you know, let's let's talk about veals then, you know, Veals are not as cute as minks. Okay, well, minks, you know, nobody's going to buy a mink coat, but we're going to continue eating veal, right? And what's the difference? I mean, uh, I met the daughter of Johann Rupert, <clears throat> Hanneli Rupert, uh, who launched a wonderful brand called Okapi. And she made a very valid point. She says, I'm just recycling uh, the, the skins of, let's say, ostrich uh you know, uh, meat. So we eat ostrich meat 
and 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 the skin is turned in, into into bags as opposed to being uh, wasted away. That makes sense. Now, for me, that makes yeah, sense. I, I, yeah, and it was you know I remember you know growing up hearing about you know the the Native Americans and how it was great that they they used every part of the animal that they killed and things like that. Like there's a nobility here, but it really goes back to storytelling, framing the issue. And a lot of just sort of what's part of the the, the mainstream conversation. Um, Astrid, this has been so fascinating. We're almost sort of out of time here. Yep. Last thing I want to do is give some outlooks for what what is the luxury world going to do in the year post the pandemic? What are some of the things that you think that we're going to see once the pandemic, once everyone agrees, you know, once France, for example, is out of the pandemic, uh, Mr. Macron has said, oh, everyone, by the <laughs> way, we've overcome it. What what is the luxury world going to do in the year after that? Well, I think there's there will be a lot of events. I think everybody's dying to go out there and hold events, and uh, and and you know there'll be there's such a thirst for uh, human exchanges that we'll see a lot of that. I, I think um, you know um, I think online buying will stick. And therefore, I think brands have come to terms with that. And therefore, online services will continue to be developed. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, it was interesting, LVMH the other day at the results, there was a question about whether they're going to downsize their retail presence in, say, Europe or other markets, which have been, you know, very severely affected by the pandemic. And they said no. Why, why would we sacrifice an investment made over the long term? Uh, people will come back to shops and, and, and business will come back. So I, I, I think um, the digital strategy of, of many luxury brands will continue to evolve and they will continue to invest money. I think we could see more consolidation in the online digital wholesale and retail side of things. I think uh, yeah. we could see alliances, yeah. uh you know, between say Uxnet Porte and other players, and uh, you know, we could see matches fashion and other businesses uh, changing, controlling shareholders. I think there will be some activity there. Um, I think the uh, sustainability uh, workers, uh, you know, well-being topics are not going to go away. I think. Uh, I think there will be, however, more spending on travel and, and leisure, uh, which has been completely put on pause uh, for the past year. So there, there'll be a rebound there. Remember, why has luxury, the luxury, the personal luxury goods industry been so resilient is because people have actually more money to spend on handbags now than they would on theater and concerts and, you know, expensive restaurants. So what's going to happen to that discretionary spending once you're able to go out and about again, that will be an interesting question. Uh, however, that spending is very much tied to tourism. So if you're able to travel to Paris and go visit that Louis Vuitton shop and get that handbag with your initials, uh, you know, written on them, well, that should be able also to sustain demand. So there'll be, there'll be a, a, a you know, give and take. I think, I think, What's going to happen to the Chinese luxury market is is very much a concern. Uh, we've seen Alibaba slapped with a 2.4 billion um, uh, fine by the Chinese government uh, for its anti-competitive attitude. Uh, 
and 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 Tmall, which is quite interesting, which is the, as you know, the uh, online marketplace for luxury brands, has been very a very popular partner in the past uh, two three years, uh, which Amazon has not been has not been uh, yet. They're the same issues for Alibaba as they are with Amazon, which is both have been peddling fakes. And, and, and yeah, uh, yeah. you know, so, um, and it's funny, there hasn't been at all the reticence of working with Tmall as there has been with Amazon. Um, but that's also because perhaps, uh, you know, luxury brands need the Chinese luxury consumer more than they need the US one. Maybe that's revealing of that. Possibly. Possibly. And 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 Alibaba's 750 million uh, customer base, which is about twice uh, the U.S.'s population, is is definitely an argument. <laughs> we'll have to see. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, this has been Astrid Vendlant. Uh, please visit her website mistweed.com for a lot more. Thank you so much, Astrid. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?